0: Part One, Chapter One of the Beach of Dreams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Beach of Dreams by H. DeVere Stackpool. Part One, Chapter One The Albatross. The forecastle, lit by a teapot lamp showed the port watch in their bunks snoring All but Harbert and draught seated on a chest Harbert patching a pair of trousers Raft smoking Raft was a big red-headed man with eyes that seemed always roving over great distances as though in search of something He was 32 years of age, and he had used the sea since twelve, twenty years his past was a long succession of focals, barrooms, blazing suns, storms, and sea happenings, so run together that all sequence was lost. Beyond them lay a dismal blotch, his childhood. He had entered the world and literally and figuratively had been laid at the door of a workhouse. Of his childhood he remembered little, of his parentage he knew nothing. In drink he was quiet, but most dangerous under certain provocations. It was as though deep in his being lay a blazing hatred born of injustice through ages, and only coming to light when upborne by balloon juice. On these occasions a saloon bar with its glitter and phantom show of mirth and prosperity sometimes called on him to dispense and destroy it. The passion to fight the crowd seized him, a passion that has its origin, perhaps, in sources other than alcohol. He was talking now to Harbert, scarcely lowering his voice on account of the fellows in the bunks snoring and drugged with ozone a kick would only have made them curse and turn on the other side and as he talked his voice made part of that procession of noises inseparable from the forecastle on a ship under sail against the head sea he had been holding forth on the food and general conditions of this ship compared with the food and conditions of his last when Harbert cut in "'There's not a pin to choose between owners. "'The ship's is owners as far as a sailor man's concerned, blast them. "'I was in a hooker once,' said Raft, "'and the old man came across a lot of cheap sugar, "'served it out to save the molasses. "'It was lead, most of it, "'and the chaps that swallowed it, their teeth came out. "'What happened to them then?' "'They croaked. "'I joined at Bombay after the business, or I'd have croaked too. "'What ship was that?' "'asked Harbert. "'I've forgot her name. "'It was a good bit back, but it's the truth.' "'Of course it's the truth,' replied the other. "'Who's doubting you? "'Any dog's trick played on a sailorman's the truth. "'You can lay to that. "'I've had four years of sea, and I ought to know.' "'What's this you were?' asked Ralph. "'Oh, I was a lot of things,' replied Harbert, "'wished I'd never left them to join this bee business. "'But it's the same ashore.' Owners all the time stuffing themselves and getting rich workers starving. Raft belonged to the old time labor world, dating from Pelagon. He grumbled but had no grudge against owners in general. It was only in drink that Pelagon rose in him. Harbert was an atom of the new voice that is heard everywhere now, even in folk He had failed in everything on land, and aboard ship he was a slacker. You cannot be a voice and an A.B. at the same time. What was your last job ashore? went on Raft, with the persistence of a child always wanting to know. Cleaning out pig said Harbert viciously. Drove to it. I tell you, when a chap's down, he's down. The chaps that has money tramples on the chaps that hasn't. I've been through it, and I know. It's the rich man does it. Well, said Raft, I don't even remember seeing one. "'Haven't you ever been in those cities?' "'I've been in cities right enough, but mostly by the waterside. "'Well, you've seen chaps in plug hats and chaps driving in carriages. "'That's the sort that keeps us down. "'That's the sort we've got to make an end of.' Ralph did not quite see. He had a respect for Harbert mixed with a contempt for him as a sailor. Harbert knew a lot, but he could not see how the chaps in plug hats kept other people down. The few he had seen had always seemed to him away and beyond his world, soft folk, and always busy about their own affairs. And how were they to be made an end of? Do you mean killing them? he asked. Oh, there's other ways than killing, replied Harbert. It's not them, it's their money does the trick. He finished his patch and turned in. Raft finished his pipe and turned in also and the forecastle was given over to the noises of the sea and the straining timbers of the ship Now that the figures of the two sailors had vanished it personally took fuller life grim dark close Like the interior of a grimy hand clutching the lives of all those sleepers The beams showed like the curved fingers and the heel of the bowspit Like the point of an interned thumb a faint soul killing rock of kerosene filled it, intensifying, after the fashion of ambergris, all the other perfumes without losing in power. Bilge, tobacco, and humanity you cannot know what these things are till they are married with the reek of kerosene, with the grunts and snores of weary men, with lamplight dimmed with smoke haze, with the heave and fall of the sea, the groaning of timbers and the boom of the waves this is the forecastle, whose great 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 grandmother was the lower deck of the trireme where slaves chained to benches laboured till they died just as they labour today chapter 2 northwest the albatross bound from cape town to melbourne had been blown out of her course and south of the crozet islands she was now steering northwest making towards kerguelen across an ice-blue sea Vast, like a country of broken crystals strewn with snow, the sky against which the top gallant staysails showed gull white in the sun, had the cold blue of the sea, and was hung around at the horizon by clouds like the white clouds that hang round the Pacific trades. Raft was at the wheel, and Captain Pound, the master, was pacing the deck with Mason, the first officer, up and down, pausing now and then for a glance away to windward now with an eye aloft at the steadfast canvas, talking all the time of subjects half a world away. It was a sociable ship, as far as the afterguard was concerned, Pound being a rough and capable man of the old school with no false dignity and an open manner of speech. He had been talking of his little house at Twickenham, of Mrs. Pound and the children, of servants and neighbours that were unsociable and now he was talking of dreams. He had been dreaming the night before of Pembroke Docks, the port he had started from as a boy. Pembroke Docks was a bad dream for Pound, and he said so. It always heralded some disaster when it appeared before him in Dreamland. I've always dreamt before that I was starting from there, said he, but last night I was getting the old albatross in, and the tow-rope went, and the tug knocked herself to bits and then the old hooker swung round and there was mrs p on the quayside in her night attire shouting to me to put the helm down under hair sticks in the dock mind you dreams are crazy things said mason i don't believe there's anything in them well maybe not said pound he glanced at the binnacle card and then went below nothing is more impressive to the unaccustomed mind than the spars and canvas of a ship under full sail seen from the deck. Nothing more suggestive of power and the daring of man than the sight of those leviathan spars and vast sail-spaces rising dizzily from main and foresail into pyramids to where the truck works like a pencil-point writing on the sky. Nothing more arresting than the power of the steersman, a turn of the wheel in the hands of Raft would set all that canvas shuddering or thundering, spilling the wind as the water is spilled from a reservoir. A moment's indecision or slackness might lose the ship a mile on her course. But Raft steered as he breathed automatically, almost unconsciously, almost without effort. He, who ashore was hopelessly adrift and without guidance, at the helm was all wisdom, direction and intuition. The wake of the albatross lay as if drawn with a ruler. His trick was nearly up, and when he was relieved he went forward. Pausing at the forecastle head to light a pipe, he fell in talk with some of the hands, leaning his back against the bulwarks and blown upon by the spill of the wind from the head sails. An old shellback by name of Ponting was holding the floor. We're coming up to Kerguelen, he was saying. Should think I did know it. Put in there, in a sealer, out of New Bedford in 82. I wasn't more a boy then. The Yanks used to use that place a lot in those days. The blackest, blastedest hole I ever struck. Christmas Island, where we lay mostly for two months. The chaps in the walruses, and killin' more than they could carry. The blastedest hole I ever struck. I was there in a Dane once, began another of the crew, it was time of year the sea-cows was mating, and you could hear the roaring of them ten mile off. "'Dane,' said Ponting, "'what made you ship aboard a Dane?' "'I've heard tell of Danes. a chap signed on in one of them Leith boots out of Copenhagen, running north. One of them old North Sea cattle trucks turned into a passenger tramp. Passengers and ponies with a hundred ton of hay stowed forward, and the passengers lying on their backs on it, smoking their pipes.' and the bridge crawled over with passengers, girls, and children, and the chap at the wheel, having to push him out of the way, kept hitting reefs all the run from Leith to God knows where, and the old man playing the fiddle most of the time. That chap, said the Danes, was a dee lot too sociable for him. Ralph listened without entirely comprehending. He had always been a foremast hand. He knew practically nothing of steam, and he would just as soon have fancied himself a railway porter as a hand on a passenger ship. He was one of the old school of merchant seamen, and the idea of a cargo of girls and children and general passengers, not to speak of ponies, was beyond him. The girls he had mostly known were of the wharf side. He finished his pipe and went down below, and turned in. He was rousted out by the voice of the boatswain calling for all hands on deck, and slipping into his oilskins, he came up, receiving a smack of sea in his face as he emerged from the forecastle hatch. The wind had shifted, and a black squall coming up from astern had hit the ship. More was coming, and through the sheeting rain and spindrift, the voice of the boatswain was roaring to let go the four top-gallant halyards. Next moment, raft was in the rigging, followed by others. The sail had to be stowed. The wind tried to tear him loose and the sheeting rain to drown him, but he went on, clinging the topgallant mast-stays and looking down, he could see the faces of the others following him, faces sheeted over with rain and working blindly upwards. Ponting was the man immediately below him, and taking breath for a moment and against the wind, Ponting was now yelling out that they had their work cut out for them. They had. The topgallant sail had taken charge of itself, and raft and ponting, as they lay out on the yard, seemed battling with a thing alive, intelligent and desperately wicked. The sails snored and trembled and sang, standing out in great hoods and folds, hard as steel. Now it would yield, owing to the slackening of the wind, and then, like a brute that had only been waiting to take them by surprise, it would burst out again, releasing itself whilst the yard buckled and sprang, almost casting them from it. Then began a battle fought without a sound or cry, except the bubbling and snoring of the great sail, struggling for its wicked liberty. It shrank, and they flung themselves on it. It bellied and flung them back. Clinging to the lift, they saved themselves, attacking it again with the dumb fury of dogs or wolves on a fighting prey. Twenty times it tried to destroy them, and twenty times they all but had it under. The fight died out of the monster for a moment, and raft had nearly an armful of it when it stiffened, fighting free of him, owing to Ponting and the other fellow not having made good. They clung for a moment without moving, resting, and raft glancing down saw far away below the narrow deck driving wedge-like through the foam-capped seas. Then the struggle began again. The sail, like its would-be captors seemed also to have taken breath it held firm relaxed banged out again in thunder developed new hoods and folds as a struggling monster might develop new heads and kinks and then all of a sudden when it seemed that no effort was to avail the end came the wind paused for a moment as if gathering up all its strength against the dogged persistency which is man and in that moment the three on the yard had the sail under their chests beating and crushing the life out of it then the gaskets were passed round it and they clung for a moment to rest and breathe it was nothing or they thought nothing of it this battle of life with the monster just the stowing of a top-gallant sail in dirty weather and most likely when they got down the boatswain would call them farmers for being such a time over it meanwhile they clung idly for a moment partly to rest and partly to look at something worth seeing. The squall was blowing out, there was nothing behind it, and away on the port quarter the almost setting sun had broken through the smother and was lighting the sea. There, set in a thousand square acres of snow-capped tourmaline, white as a gull and beautiful as Grace itself, was running a vessel under bare poles the two yellow funnels the cut of the hull told ponting what she was he had seen her twice before and no sailor who had set eyes on her could forget her see that blighter he yelled across the raft know her should think i did she's a gaston de Pare, a yacht seen her in clon then they came down crawling like weary men and on deck no one abused them for their slackness or the time they'd been over their job. The albatross was running easy, and the boatswain with others were taken up with a momentary curiosity over the great white yacht. No one knew her but Ponting, who had for several years acted as deckhand on some of the Mediterranean boats. "'I know her,' said he, ranging up beside the others. "'She's the Gaston de Paris, a yacht, seen her in Toulon Harbour, and seen her again at Suez.' She's a thousand-tonner. You can't mistake them funnels, nor the width of them. She's a 20 knotter, and the chap that owns her is a king or something. Last time I saw her, she was off to the China Seas. They say she's all cluttered up with dredges and dipsy gear, and she mostly spends her time taking soundings and scrabbling up shellfish and such. That's his way of amusing himself. Then he must be crazy, said the boatswain, but begod he's got a beauty under him. What's he doing down here, anyway? Ask me another, said Ponting. Ralph stood with the others, watching the Gaston de Paris, from whose funnels now the smoke was coming festooned on the wind. Then he went below to shed his oilskins and smoke. She had ceased to interest him. End of Part 1 Chapter 2